You're listening to the River City Church Podcast. Our desire is that you know Jesus, experience freedom, find community, and discover purpose. For more information, check us out on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co. Here's the message. Today, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Luke 24. Luke 24, in just a moment. And before we get there, uh, if you turn there in your Bible app or with your phone or tablet, or uh, we'll have it on the screen. If you've got your paper Bible, you can turn there. Uh, I, I had somebody up front that had their paper Bible first service. It was awesome because they were turning. You get all the pages going. I'm old school. I like that too. Uh, just get all the pages, except they couldn't find it. So the pages just kept going back and forth. <laughs> Um, that's all right. Uh, but but I, I gave you this first last week. We, we started this series talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the new church, the New Testament church, following uh, the resurrection of Jesus, what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. And uh, I gave you that phrase, what's next? It's something we say when uh, maybe everything in our car or at our house seems to be breaking. We say, what's next? Like we look at it as a negative, uh, but there's also a positive what's next. There's an expectation. Uh, And as a child of God, I gave you this verse, and we'll put this on the screen, Romans 8 in the Message Bible, uh, verse 14 says, God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you've received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It is adventurously expectant. I like that. It's adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a child like, what's next? I think as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, it's not that we don't walk through difficult things, that we don't go through battles or go through storms, uh, but, but here's, here's what I know. When we serve a God who is always, always good, he has good things planned. And we can come with an expectation. Maybe you're in a battle right now. Well, I wake up and I go, okay, God, when's the battle over? I'm expecting it. I know, I know you've got something. This isn't going to be the end of the story. This isn't going to be, this chapter doesn't define the whole book. And, and, and as a believer in Jesus, we can come every day with an adventurous expectation, greeting God, saying, what's next, God? What do you have in store? And last week we looked at how Jesus, as he ascended into heaven and left his disciples uh, following the resurrection, that, that they asked that question, what's next? What do we do? Uh, he gave them the Great Commission, told them about his kingdom, and then he said, here's what I'm going to do to empower you to, to really walk this out. He said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to leave you orphans, but I'm going to empower you. And so we talked about the Holy Spirit last week. Today we're going to talk about something else that I believe equips us uh, just as important, that equips us to walk in freedom, to walk in all that God has for us. And and I think how we, there's there's two things that I like to say here, uh, and I, I repeat it often because it's foundational. And here's what it is. There's two things that are the most important things you believe in life. First, what you believe about God, and second, what you believe about yourself. First, what you believe about God. I think if we believe wrongly about God, we don't approach God like this verse says. We don't approach God with an expectation and anticipation, a, a hunger to see God work in our life in a great way. We maybe fear the future. We live with anxiety or fear. We live with a dread every morning. We, we wake up. I know many Christians, I was there for a season of my life. We wake up and we're fighting the devil. We're rebuking every devil on planet earth, but we don't even know that God's created this day for his purpose and the enemy doesn't have to set the agenda. Amen. People, the culture, the world around us doesn't have to set the agenda. I love what verse 16 says, God's spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who he is. That's the first thing we need to get straight. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children. So God's calling us. He's inviting us 
through this series, I believe, to, to step into really that what's next, to live every day with that anticipation. In Luke 24, I didn't forget, I told you to turn there, and I want to read this story. It's, it's just after the resurrection, before Jesus ascends, what we looked at last week, and pours out the Holy Spirit. But in Luke 24, 13, it's a conversation Jesus has with two of his disciples, two of his followers. And it's hard for us, I think, you know, in hindsight to look back and see the full weight of what they were walking through, feeling, what they had in emotions between the cross and the resurrection, because they didn't fully understand what God was doing. They didn't fully understand what even took place. And so now behold, verse 13, two of them, two of these followers of Jesus, were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. What were they? The Jesus was betrayed, he was arrested, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was nailed to the cross, and he died on a hill called Golgotha, and he was crucified there. They've even begun to hear stirrings and rumors that he's risen from the dead. So they're talking about this, what's just happened, and so it was, while they conversed and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes, verse 16, were restrained, so they did not know him. They didn't know they were having a conversation with Jesus. They didn't know that he was walking alongside the road. And these were not people who were uh, unaware or unfamiliar with him. They probably spent the last few years of their life walking with Jesus, hearing his words. And yet it says that God restrained their ability to see in that moment because what they needed to see, they weren't seeing yet. And right now they're preoccupied with the news of the day, preoccupied with the problems around them. And Jesus says to them, verse 17, what kind of conversation are you having? while you walk and are sad. <laughs> I mean, Jesus just, you know, conquered the grave, defeated death, defeated sin, defeated hell, and he's, he's walking alongside with his disciples, and they are sad, they are depressed as can be, and he says, why are you so sad? They said, are you the only one? Look at this, one of them named Cleopas said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who didn't see what's all over the news? Who didn't hear what took place? Are you living under a rock? Those are my words. Here's my weird sense of humor. I think he would have said, yeah, I was under a rock, but I rolled it away this morning. Come on. <laughs> You've not known the things which happened here in these days? I mean, how, how is it you don't know? And so Jesus says, well, what things? So they answered, and they said, well, the things concerning Jesus, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. And we were hoping, listen to that statement, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us, and when they didn't find his body, they came saying they saw visions of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just like they said, but they didn't see him there. So he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory. We'll, we'll pause there for a second. In this conversation, Jesus doesn't just come and appear to Peter, James, John, the, 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 the inner circle. He didn't just appear to those who would be called apostles. He didn't just appear to those who would be leaders and pastors and, and, and teachers of the church. He appeared to the ones who, other than one guy, are largely unknown. It names one of the two, but, but they're unknown. They're just ordinary disciples. They're just ordinary followers. And yet Jesus knows that they need a conversation. 
He comes to them where they're at. He comes to them in their confusion. He comes to them in their hurt, in their brokenness, in their misunderstanding, because frankly, they're, they're not seeing, not only do they not recognize Jesus walking with them, but they're preoccupied with what's happening around them. And they said, we had hoped. You know what that tells me? They're disappointed. Do you ever think your life would be different? Do you ever think a certain person would be in your life that's not, or a certain opportunity would be there that never presented itself? And many people are stuck in a place just like these two men. They're, they're saying, we hope things would be different. We hope this Jesus would be the answer to our political problem, and, and this Jesus would rule in the city and kick out the Romans, and, and, and it would solve our day-to-day situation. And, and they don't realize they're having a conversation with Jesus, and here's what he says, you're slow of heart to believe. Even his closest group of followers, he would have largely the same conversation with them because there was something over their heart that was keeping them from seeing. I would compare it to a lens. You know, I've got my, my readers. The older I'm getting, the more I need readers. And, and the first thing I know about these is when I put them on to read something, if I've got a smudge on there, it's going to distract me or obstruct my view. And so I can try to smear it with my finger. I'm just going to make it worse. So I got to have the right tool, the right, uh, you know, I got this cloth here. I got to have the right thing to be able to help me to clear it, to be able to see clearly. And I believe many people are not seeing God clearly. And because they're not seeing God clearly, they're not seeing themselves clearly. And they're not seeing the world clearly. We look through a lens, a filter that's shaping the way we see God. And many times we're, we, our, our lens, our view, our filter is one of disappointment. We know what the Bible says, we sing songs, he's good, but we have a hard time believing it because we look at what happened, what didn't happen, we, we didn't think he was there, and, and we look at all these moments and we, we define who God is based on our experience. Maybe we even define him based on our, what our culture has to say, by the opinions around us, what our family had to say, what things look like, even the, paint, the picture that religion painted, and you see God through the stained glass instead of who he is. There's a story of two boys one was named Truth and one was named Lies. And they went to go play one day. It was summer, and summer is coming, I promise. And they, they went swimming. Their favorite thing to do was go swim. So they went swimming in the local pool, and they jumped in. They were the only ones there, so they decided, because, uh, you know, when you're, when you're a young kid, you just don't make smart decisions always, and so they decided to go skinny dipping. Some, some of you all remember those days. Please do not raise your hand or tell us about that. Um, some of you are like, that, that was yesterday. No, um, and so these two boys jump in the pool, and they take the clothes off, throw them on the side. They jump in the pool, and they start playing in the water. And, and, and they decide, let's play, let's play our favorite game. Let's play Marco Polo. You know Marco Polo. One person says, Marco, and the other person says, Polo. Okay, good. All right. You've, you've heard of it. And then they, after they were done with that, they played a game that doesn't have a name. It's, uh, it's what I used to do as a kid. I'd go under the water. I'd hold my breath for as long as I could. And if I was with a friend, we'd hold our breath to see who can stay under the longest and hold their breath the longest. And so Lys says, hey, let's, let's go under the water, hold our breath, and whoever can stay under the longest wins. And so Truth said, okay. So Truth goes down in the water, but this time Lies didn't go down in the water. Lies went out. Lies climbed out of the pool, grabbed his clothes. He also grabbed Truth's clothes. Truth's clothes. And he took off with both sets of clothes. And, and, and while he's running away, Truth is under the water thinking he's winning. Totally oblivious to what's taking place. So Truth comes up out of the water, excited, I won, and he looks around and Lies is nowhere to be seen. 
In fact, not only that, but there's no clothes to be seen either. So he has to run, butt naked, through the street. He goes to his friend's house, lies. He knocks on that door. Lies comes to the door, fully dressed. In fact, he's not just wearing his clothes. He's actually now wearing Truth's clothes. He answers the door and says, hey, what's going on? And, and Truth says, why did you leave me in the pool? In fact, why did you take my clothes, and why are you wearing my clothes? Lies says, no, you don't understand. I wasn't at the pool. I was watching cartoons all morning. I've been right here. Truth says, no, what are you talking about? We were just at the pool, and we were playing at the pool, and you took my clothes, and he goes through the whole thing, and they start arguing back and forth, and this argument gets heated as it tends to between young boys that are getting into a tussle and a brawl, and, and they start, it spills out into the street, and they're fighting until now the neighbors see what's going on, and they come out, and they're trying to figure out why in the world is this one butt naked? Why are they fighting? And Truth's yelling at him, you give me my clothes back, or I'm going to punch you in your face. And while they're fighting back and forth, everybody around, the crowd's gathered, and they're trying to evaluate, and they ask themselves this question. Who do we believe? Lies and truth clothing, or the naked truth? I think the hardest truth to accept is the naked truth. The easiest lies to accept are those wrapped in truth clothing. So here's what we do when it comes to how we view God. Many times we define God, we, we put ourselves in a position where we're going to define who God is and what he's like, and, and, and often, again, through a lens, through a view of what we've been given or what we've been shaped. But I think, you know, in the Old Testament, there was the most frequent, common, repeated sin was the issue of, in fact, it's a root of many other issues, but it was the, the sin of idolatry. And we can think, man, we are so sophisticated. Like, we have, we have graduated from idolatry. Like, we don't, make, we don't cut down a tree, shape it into an image, and bow down and say, this is my God. But you know what idolatry is at its heart? It's, it's when we take something, an idea, a principle, an activity, a way of life, a philosophy, even a view of God, and we elevate it in the place of God. Or more importantly, we reshape God after our image, after our desires, after our pursuits, after our own self-interest, and we want a God. In fact, this is interesting because you and I are created in the image of God. We're shaped after the image of God. What sets us free, what gives us purpose and meaning in life is not how the world defines us. It's not what people have said. Truth is, it comes from the one who is true. And so if we're shaped by the one who created us and called us and loved us and sent Jesus for us, then we find out who we really are. But instead, what we try to do is reverse the process, and we say, well, God, I'm going to make you like my image. I think there's no other clear place of this than we see in the Old Testament when God comes down on Mount Sinai. God comes down in glory and power, and it's undeniable it's God. Like, this isn't, there's no question, there's no wondering, was that a goosebump? Was that God? Like, there was none of that. God's there on the mountain. And, and all of Israel, while Moses goes up and talks to God and receives the Ten Commandments, Israel decides, well, rather than drawing near to God, because that might require some changing, some rearranging, some surrender, they decide, they, they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, hey, can you make us a God? I, I don't know how you can sit at the foot of a mountain where God himself and his glory is dwelling, and yet that's human nature. We often will exchange the God who changes us for a God we can change after our own ideas and image. And so they form a golden calf, and they actually call it, if you look in Hebrew, they, they call it Yahweh. They say, we're going to have a feast to the Lord. They, they could manage that God. 
They could understand a God made after their image, their ideas, their philosophies. And, and many people have a lot of opinions of who Jesus is and who God is, but where do we find who God really is? Where do we, how do we see God? I've got three points for you. Number one is this, what do you see? What do you see? Is your view of God shaped by what you've been told, by what religion's painted as a picture? Is it by your own, do you, do you see God? Sometimes we, we view God through the lens of our own self-interest. Like God's always gonna agree with me. Anybody ever do that besides me? Like God, your voice is the one that always agrees with mine. And you find out that's not the case. Anyway, sometimes we view God through the lens of our hurt, through the lens of abuse, mistreatment, bad authorities. And we look at God as someone we can't trust, we can't follow, we can't fully surrender to because we're not quite convinced yet he's good. And so just like these two men who are walking alongside Jesus, our eyes are restrained and we can't quite see what we need to see and who we need to see. So here's what happens. We come to number two. To find out how we can see God truly and fully, God's actually given us something very important. He's given us his word. As a Christian, I believe the, the word of God, the, the Bible, is inspired. It's not like any other book. It's not even like any other religious textbook. It's very different. It's very unique. And, and, and not only is it a book that I can read, but it's a book that actually reads me. <laughs> that, that, that God can use to transform my life and, and the way I build my future and the way my marriage is, is, is put together and the way I raise my kids and the way I, I, I can build my future. And so all those things are shaped by a foundation. And if we're not careful, we'll have either, we'll build without a foundation or we'll build with a wrong foundation. Jesus told a parable like that. He said, whoever hears my words and puts them into practice is like a man who has taken, uh, who has built a house on a solid rock. The person who doesn't, who hears it, but doesn't put it into practice is like a man who builds his house, but builds it on sand. Do you know sand is very similar in composition to rock? It's just not as solid. It's made up of fragments of what makes up the rock, but it's not the totality of it. And for my life to have a solid foundation, I have to come to God and say, God, you're true and your word is truth and I want you to teach me who you are. This is, rather than trying to, 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 to work out the smudges on my glasses, I can come with, that, with his word and it washes away any lie I've believed about God to set me free to bring me hope in a future. And, and here's why this is important. Because the image I've shaped after mine, the idol that I've created, is powerless to save me. Religions Jesus can't save. Philosophies, ideas can't save. There's some things in life that can improve temporarily, but there's only one thing that saves, and it's the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who is real and who's alive and who right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, who 2,000 years ago conquered my sin and took it on the cross and defeated the grave and rolled the stone away. That same Jesus wants to do something here and now today. And if I exchange him for my own golden calf, I'm exchanging him who can give life for something that can never give life, no matter how much it promises it. 
I try to find my identity in the wrong thing. See, we're the, if you just take it out of the spiritual side for a second, because I know we get our identity from, from God. You know, sociologists have begun to identify a trend. We're the first generation in human history that doesn't find its identity from its family and from its community, but looks inward. We're the first generation in human history to do that. Not only do we look inward, but then we demand everybody else recognize that in the community. Now let's, let's, let's move that into the truth of God's word. I believe our identity doesn't come from the world that says you're a name, a statistic, a number, but instead comes from the one who fashioned you. Do you know when God created mankind, he got real close. Everything else he spoke. That was good. But he got real close when he formed man. He breathed his own breath into, and you're not like anything else. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You have an eternal God-given purpose. You're here for a reason. And, and, and so this is important we get this because if we don't see God clearly, we won't see ourselves clearly and we'll accept lies wrapped in true clothing. Instead of the naked truth that sometimes can be offensive and hurt our pride and hurt our plans, instead, Jesus' truth comes along and goes, this may hurt for a moment, but it'll free you. It'll free you. Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatians, he wrote them, he said, have I become your enemy now because I tell you the truth? And then there's a tendency if we're not careful to exchange a God who gives life and who can transform and save anybody, because an idol can't forgive, an idol can't heal, an idol can't give life, but Jesus does all of those yes. in abundance. <laughs> so how do we get, point number two, how do, we, how do we see the truth? How do we know the truth? Well, I, I believe that we need to, if you can put up point two, I believe that it's important for us to see God clearly. We must see him through, the, through his word, Amen. through the foundation of his word. God gave us his word not to give us a textbook to start a religion. He gave us his word to reveal himself. Do you know what the Bible is? It's God's self-revelation. It's a self-revelation. In other words, it's God saying, here's who I am, and here's, who, here my, plan. here's my plan for humanity. Here's the need, and here's what I came to do to fix the need. And that's as we, as we start with his word. And, and, but what's interesting is in that day, people misunderstood the purpose of the Bible. Let me actually read to you what, what 2 Timothy says. 2 Timothy is Paul's explanation of what God's word does and is for. Chapter 3, verse 15. From childhood, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. What does that mean? It means that men held the pen, but God wrote the book. So that's why this book can read you, because it's God's word. In fact, here's what I know. Philosophies and opinions will not last the next breath they're expressed in. But God said of his word, heaven and earth itself will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away. So that's huge. So if I'm going to build my life on something, it sure ain't going to be somebody's opinion. If I'm going to stake my future and my family and who I am and what I'm going to spend my life for, for the rest of my finite existence on planet earth, it's going to be for something real that lasts. Not moved with every opinion and philosophy of our culture and anything that, that ultimately collapses in on itself, but instead something that 
is unshakable and unchanging. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means God gave you the book, but then as the author also wanted to make it known to you. It's profitable for doctrine. That is a word that intimidates a lot of us. But doctrine is not something heavy. It's simply teaching. So he wants to teach us. He wants to teach us. Teach us who he is. Teach us what he's got planned for us. Teach us his will, his ways for reproof and correction. (laughs) So, So there's times where I'm coming to the word with my opinion and it conflicts with what this says. And at that moment, I'm going to find out who's God in my life. Okay, I'll just leave that there. Drop that one and move on. Um, For instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does God do? He equips you with his word. And he's he's writing this to Timothy, who's a leader in the church, but this this applies for every single one of us. God's word equips us, grows us, challenges us, changes us. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Here's what I find. The older people get, the more they take sunset pictures. It's just true. And nobody wants to see them, but it's okay. <laughs> you still do it anyway. It's all right. It's all right. I do it too. I take it all the time. Um, the heavens themselves declare the glory of God. In other words, God's creation points to a creator. God's creation. God is in He's the greatest engineer there ever was. He's designed order to the most smallest particle in existence. But he's also an artist. He created things not just because they're functional, but to make them beautiful. That's who your God is. Like, that's just a glimpse. And he, he created everything to point to a creator. But here's what we have to recognize. It says the firmament, firmament shows his handiwork. Day and today they utter speech. So, so creation itself is pointing to a creator, but verse seven tells us what we need from there because that brings us to a place where we can say, God, if you're, here's what I did in college. I said, God, if you're there, God, make yourself known to me. And I, I mean, it was real. It wasn't, I, I cried out to God and he met me in a, in a very personal, life-transforming way. And verse seven tells us what changes us is actually not just the general revelation of creation, but his word, because it says the law of the Lord. That's another word for the Bible, the Torah and in context of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. But here's what it is. The word of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. It's what changes me from the inside out. It's what reveals my need of God, but also gives me the solution, the answer, so that I can be forgiven and free. Statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And, and so all of these things point to, you can read the rest of that chapter, but, but here's what it, it's letting us know, that God's word is life-giving because it points to a God who gives life. So let's go back to the story at Emmaus, because here's what happens. These two disciples are walking alongside with Jesus in verse 27. It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets... Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he starts with Moses, he goes through, and, and he's pointing out, he looks at creation and describes how these things, you know that ark that Noah built for, for God, that ark, the, the thing that saved his generation and, and provided protection, that's a, that's a picture of what, what Jesus does. And then he, he takes them to the, 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 the exodus and the Passover lamb that was sacrificed and the blood that was put on the doorpost so the death passed 
passed over and the whole household was saved. And he points out and says, that's about Jesus. And he, he's going through all of this. Of course, he's talking about himself, but he's going through all of it, expounding to them, letting them know this isn't just a dry historical text. This is about me. And, and he's pointing from picture to picture. You know all those kings that you thought were going to be the hope and the future, and they fell short, but they all pointed to a, a king of kings. You know that Messiah that Israel's crying out for, their promise? He goes through every prophecy and every picture and every type, the temple and the tabernacle, all those things ultimately point to the Savior that was coming. And he's letting them know all of that, and he expounds to them in the scriptures all those things concerning himself. Do you want to know what the subject of the Bible is ultimately? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It, later in that same chapter, verse 45, with the rest of the disciples, it says he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So this is more than just, we'll just read this, figure it out, win some arguments on Facebook. Get, you know knowledge can puff up? So, so I, can, I can read this and go, God, I thank you I'm not like those heathens. I thank you I'm not like those other people that don't know the Bible like I do. And, and you know, the Pharisees, they did the same thing. They were there in Jesus' day, and they, they put burdens on people instead of lifting burdens. And they had the Bible memorized. They had the Old Testament. That's all they had access to at that time. They, they, they had it memorized. At age six, they started with the book of Leviticus. Not where I recommend starting. I'll just say that. But they started at six years old and would memorize the entire Old Testament by the time they became experts. And these experts rejected the one that the Bible was all about. Because the goal of the book isn't even to just know the book, it's to know the author. It's to know the author. And so Jesus opened their understanding. So you don't have to try to just figure this out. You can actually ask the author. We talked about the Holy Spirit last week. Help me understand this. Help me to know this. Reveal yourself to me. Help me to, and, and it's amazing because there's times I'll read the Bible and it's exactly the thing I'm walking through, need to hear, whatever that is, because the Bible is not like any other book. God's word is alive and it'll give you the foundation you need. Yes. Third and final point is this. If we go back to the story of the men, they are walking with Jesus and they still don't quite get it yet. I can appreciate that. Like, there's still some things I've studied for 18 years, preaching and teaching the Bible, and I'm still like, God, I don't, get it. I don't have it all figured out, but I know you. I've gotten to know you. Do you want to know how to see God clearly? I'm going to give you a real simple picture. Look at the cross. The cross is the perfect meeting point of God's holiness, righteousness, and justice. And his, his wrath against sin, why does God have wrath against sin? Sin is the thing that destroys what God loves which is you and me. And so, so his perfect, all of that meets his perfect mercy and his perfect goodness and his perfect grace and his perfect forgiveness at the cross. The place where those two meet is the place of your redemption and mine. If you want to see what God's really like, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did for you and for me. And when he invites us through his word to know him and he wipes away the smudges to say, this is the life I have for you. This is who I am and this is who you are. We can, we can follow that. That's what it means to follow Jesus, to say, okay, I don't always understand it all, but I surrender. I trust. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to apply this to my life. I'm going to invite you every day to be at the center. And, and, 
You know, I learned this. The Bible says in Psalm, or uh, excuse me, Proverbs 16, there's a way that seems right to a man. There's a way that seems right to the world. There's a way that seems right to culture. There's a way that seems right to our family even sometimes. Let's just make it personal. There's a way that seems right to me. And I can find plenty of voices to agree, but it doesn't mean that it leads to life. But how do we find life? It leads, you can see there the rest of the verse. There's a way that seems right, but it leads to death. How do we find life? We start with his word, but that's, can I, can I just say it's not enough? And before you misunderstand, I don't mean that his word isn't enough for foundation, but the goal of the book wasn't just to have the book, it was to know the author. So point three is this, that we can only see God rightly through relationship. Through relationship with Jesus. Let's go back to the story. Here's what happens with these guys. Verse 28. They drew near to the village. That was point three, by the way, but sorry. Uh, They drew near to the village where they were going, and Jesus indicated that he was going to keep going. So up to this point, they're just having a Bible study. And he's unfolding these without letting them know it's him yet. And he indicates, they come to the town, he's like, hey, I'm going to keep going a little bit. He's indicating, I'm going to keep walking. I've got some business around the corner. And they, watch what they do, they constrained him, verse 29, abide with us, for it's late, it's towards evening, the day's far spent, uh, and, they went, and he went in, excuse me, he went in to stay with them. They did something that compelled him to stay. Not that he was unwilling or had to be convinced, but there's something about relationship that isn't forced. There's some things God does I don't know, the, the term might be sovereignly. Like Saul of Tarsus is on his way to kill some Christians, put him in prison, and Jesus just knocks him. He has radical life transformation. There's moments like that, certainly. But you know what often defines relationship is accepting and responding to an invitation. It's not a forced thing. It's an invited thing. And Jesus is going along, but, but there's something in them that says, no, we're not done talking about this yet. We're not done. Come stay with us. Abide with us. Stay. And Jesus responds because he never turns down that opportunity to draw near to you. It came to pass that as they sat at the table with them, Jesus took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. Come on. Their eyes were opened. And they knew him. That word knows not just like to know information, it's to know by experience. Jesus vanishes from their sight. Like he just, it's just amazing. They're having lunch with Jesus and now they see at the table of fellowship what they didn't see just on the road. Now in close proximity, they see what they haven't seen before. What's the point? Distance creates misunderstanding, but proximity or closeness creates intimacy creates knowing by experience, creates real relationship. Do you know that God doesn't do long-distance relationships? (laughs) Jesus didn't die on the cross for distance. He wants you to know him. He wants to make himself known to you. He wants to have you accept his invitation to life. I I had a family member. um, Does anybody have a family member? Don't raise your hand, but maybe you're sitting next to him. Uh, Have a family member that, that just always looks upset. They just have that scowl, like that permanent, like, 
that look. Uh, some of you are giving me that look right now. Like, <laughs> I, had, I had a family member. Her, she was my, my, uh, my grandmother's sister. She's in heaven now. Uh, lived till like 91 years old. Amazing lady. But I didn't know how amazing she was when I was a kid. I was terrified of this lady. Because she just had that look. Like kids don't like to run up to people that look mean. It's not complicated. That's why we know Jesus didn't look mean. Because kids like to hang around him. It's just, come on. Some of us think Jesus had, you know, that religious look on his face. So, so uh, one time, I think I was like 9 or 10, I'm at her house, and she has a recliner, or a lazy boy, which to a 9 or 10-year-old boy means it's a race car. And so I jump in that thing, I'm spinning around, I pull the handle back, and boom, the bottom pops out, and I lean back, and I'm revving that car, and I'm racing, except when I popped it back, I broke a piece of fine china that she'd had since her wedding. I know, I know, yeah, I was terrified. At that point, I wrote my own will. (laughs) Mom and dad, it's been a good run. I now bequeath all of my toys to the dog. Like, that was where I was at at that point because I thought, she's going to come here and she's going to kill me because she just had that. Now, she was this uh, short little Armenian lady. Like, she was sweetest lady. But I didn't know she was sweet because she looked angry. And so I'm anticipating when she comes to the house, she's going to murder me. And yet, what she showed me, now, she did the thing that most adults, most parents, family members do. We, we go, I'm just disappointed, which is almost worse. It's like, just... Punish me, please. No. But you know what I found out? She's one of the sweetest ladies in our entire family. And I grew to love her. She's one of the, she, she had the best sense of humor, but I was missing because of how I viewed her. And instead of, instead of getting punished that day, I found out how much she loved me. Even though I had broken something and created a mess, something that had great value to her, but she loved me more. Do you know that our sin breaks things? But God loves you so much and wants you to know his great love, his mercy. And Jesus is walking with these two men. Jason, if you and the team want to come up. It says, when they drew near where they were going, he indicated you go on further. There's something, God's moving all the time, but he wants to invite you along for the journey. He wants you to experience him and see him for who he really is. I think we've created a culture, because digital's not bad. I'm not one of those guys who's like, oh, digital's bad. No, no, digital is an amazing tool. But you know what digital has done in our culture? Digital has caused us to almost live life window shopping. Here's what I mean. You know, when you go window shopping, you're on the outside, and you're just watching. You're on the outside, and you're like, oh, that looks interesting. But there's no cost involved. There's no commitment involved. And there's also no experience. And so we can have digital friendships that don't require real investment. Are, are you with me? And so we can have the same approach with God. We can window shop with God, stay on the outside, look at all the things he's got promised, and go, that's interesting. That'd be nice. But instead, we're invited inside to experience what Jesus has already paid for. He's, he's, he's not called you to stay at a distance. He wants you to know him. He wants you to experience him. In fact, I believe the adventure of a lifetime is waiting for everyone when we say yes to Jesus fully. When we step into his kingdom, when we respond to his invitation, that's when you discover what you were made for, what you were put on planet Earth for. And after 
Jesus, you know, disappears from the room. One guy says to the other one, what's in verse 32? We're going to finish here. Did not our hearts burn within us <laughs> while, he, while he walked with us and opened to us the scriptures? I love that statement. That's my favorite part of the whole story, other than they, they got to see Jesus, like he revealed himself to them, and they got to know him like they didn't know him before. But now, they're talking to each other, and you know what I love about this? They're saying, there was something going on in our heart before we even understood it with our heads. Before we even recognized it. Does God want you to know him with your, with your mind, your, your understanding? Absolutely. God's not anti-intellectual by any means. Religion does a disservice when it paints that picture. Like you have to check your mind at the door to follow Jesus. That's not the way this works. But faith always starts with the heart. It always starts with surrender. It always starts with a yes to Jesus. And, and here's what they recognize. Our hearts were burning while he was talking to us about this. Our hearts were burning. This wasn't like any other conversation. Something was happening on the inside. Do you know what that means? When, we, when our hearts are burning, it's a result of being in proximity with Jesus, hearing his words for ourselves. Do you know the opposite is true? If my heart's not burning, I haven't seen Jesus. Maybe I've seen religion. Maybe I've checked the box, but have I encountered, have I stepped in? Am I still window shopping? Or have I stepped in to what he has? Have I allowed him to peel back the lies and fully embrace the truth of who he is and what he's created me to be? In that moment, their heads caught up with their hearts. And I, I believe today that's where some of you are at. You're trying to figure it all out, but, but it starts with a yes. The critics would miss Jesus. But the sinners and the broken and the hurting and the lost said, I need you. He was right there. He's there for every one of us. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Paul would later write to the Corinthian church. And he described something similar to this principle, talking about his brothers and sisters naturally that had not yet accepted Christ. He said there's a veil as they read the Old Testament, as they read the Bible, there's a veil over their heart. There's like a filter. And it's keeping them from understanding what they're reading. But here's the statement. He says, when one turns to the Lord, to Jesus, the veil is removed. There's, there's something that can cover your heart. Maybe it's shame. Maybe it's hurt. Maybe it's what others have done to you. Maybe it's your own failures. Maybe it's abuse and mistreatment by people. I, I, I don't know. But many times we have something over our heart that we can't quite see that he's good. And we can't quite see that he is who he says he is. And, and we allow disappointment to frame how we view God or read the word. We allow our, our mistakes, our all, all that stuff, you name it. But when one turns to the Lord, what does it mean for him to be Lord? Lord means he's ruling. I'm surrendering. It's that simple. When one turns to the Lord, I don't have to be an expert. I don't have to figure me out. You know, the world's like, hey, learn you. (laughs) 
I tried. I was a mess. <laughs> the more I knew me, the more I was frustrated. You know, I mean, it's just real. But, but here's what I found. When you turn to the Lord, it frees you. He lifts the veil. He opens up his word. In fact, not only does he open all those things up, he says, here's what I've got. It's a future and a hope and a promise for you. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. We trust this message encourages you in faith and in your relationship with Jesus. To learn more about River City Church, find us on social or visit us at rivercitychurch.co.